All right. Greetings, everybody. This is Dr. Paul from Romantopedia, romantopedia.substack.com, and um, romantopedia.com. Those of you who are uh, paid Substack members have access to romantopedia.com in its entirety, as well as uh, coursework, which is on uh, romanticdynamics.com. And I'm going to have references for uh, you all to access. Uh, those of you who actually click on the link to see the the pre, during, and post um, webpage for this talk. We did a little intro last time a week ago, and uh, we're doing these on every other Sunday night, holding them kind of late uh, to try to accommodate both the U.S. and Europe and Asia, uh, perhaps we need to uh, choose an earlier time. Uh, I'm starting to get feedback about that. So anybody who would like to uh, write me about it on Substack, let me know of a preferred time. And I'm gonna code this as a, as a lecture. Uh, those of you who show up live, it's a great way to ask direct questions to me about each lesson as we go through them. And every other week, we're going to go through another lesson until we get through all nine steps of courtship in three phases of courtship. And I'm going to change to lecture mode. Um, it, those of you who show up live can hit star two on your phone to raise your hand, and then I can call on you. You also can submit questions ahead of time or during these events, and we do already have one from CELO in Europe that has shown up. If you submit questions and you don't even necessarily attend live, I will answer your questions on these calls, and then you'll be able to download them as a recording afterward. So that's what CELO is going to do. Um, I think I'm going to answer his question in the context of uh, covering this this first step of human courtship in more detail. And again, uh, there's going to be a link on the pre, during, and post pages, a link to romantopedia.com, as well as a link to the course on romantic dynamics. And it'll be the same um, first step of human courtship that will be covered. Those of you who are Paying members uh, may have discovered Romantopedia.com in its entirety. Um, it's a compendium of the Romantic Dynamics model of courtship. Uh, it's very literary. Uh, in certain portions, it needs to draw from um, ancient literature, myth, and folklore, um, much like Jungian psychology tends to do. It's very useful. Where Jungian psychology meets evolutionary psychology is very useful, I believe, in understanding human instincts and codifying them. But there are uh, some other areas where we need to uh, tap into Shakespeare for examples of um, human emotional function, mammalian brain function. And then finally, a lot of cinematic examples, modern cinema, for looking at all the permutations and combinations of um, conscious human thought. 
and ethics and decision making. We use cinema. So ancient Greek literature, uh, Shakespeare, ancient Greeks for the instincts uh, when joined uh, between Jungian psychology and evolutionary psychology, Shakespeare for understanding in a literary way all the ways human emotions play out, and then modern cinema for understanding uh, the third phase of courtship, the conscious mind and partnership. So we're starting at step one. Um, so we're in the first phase. We're going to go deeper this time. It's been just mere introduction. The first phase of human courtship is attraction or desire, or you could say passion. Um, a different phrase would be sexual attraction, but that almost sounds like the sex act itself. And, you know, we don't really talk about that. That's unnecessary. We're talking about what's going on between the ears here, psychology uh, of passion. So the first phase is passion or desire or sexual attraction. And we divide it into three steps. And this, today we'll cover the first step. The reason there are three, well, several reasons. Um, a story is divided at least into three parts, a beginning, a middle, and an end. So each phase of courtship is like its own story um, on that portion of courtship. And then courtship itself is an overall story. So there are three phases, three steps, three phases, three steps per phase. The reason there are three, three steps specifically in this first phase, we covered in the introduction last week when we talked about the story of uh, the great feast of uh, Zeus and Hera and the story of Eris, the goddess of discord. The only deity that was not invited to the great feast was Eris because nobody wants discord at their party or at their feast. And Eris, uh, in her jealousy, had rolled a golden apple into the party that she was not invited to, which said Kalisti on it, which means for the fairest. So, of course, she managed to introduce discord, even though she was not invited. In fact, even more so because she was not invited. And, of course, uh, as you might expect, discord erupted and... Uh, three main goddesses got in a conflict, a contest over who is the fairest. And the three goddesses were Aphrodite, Hera, and Athena. And this is depicted in a beautiful painting in the National Portrait Gallery in London by Wewaddle. Uh, called The Temptation of Paris. And you see the three goddesses um, displaying their wares to Paris. The reason Paris uh, of Troy was chosen is because these goddesses, Aphrodite, Hera, and Athena approached Zeus and said, hey, you have to choose which of us is the best because we all want that golden apple. And Zeus in his wisdom said, no, no, you're not going to, not going to trick me into that um, that decision where everybody's going to be mad at me. Let's get the most successful, rich, um, 
handsome mortal male in the world and get him to decide who is the best. And as it goes, uh, the contest is won by Aphrodite, the goddess of the feminine form and erotic um, love, desire, uh, beauty, you could say. It was won by her uh, because what she offered Paris was the, the love of Helen of Troy which we all know is the face that launched a thousand ships. She was known for her beauty and Paris chose her first number one, which might imply metaphorically to us that males of the species, if given only one option, one choice in the desire and passion arena would probably pick beauty, uh, physical beauty, the physical form of the female, you know, and thus the appeal uh, to males of today's pornography, the visual depiction of the feminine form, whatever debate you want to get into on, you know, the, um, the fine details of, you know, why that exists, why, why it lasts and is popular. It's visual and it's the feminine form. Well, one time when I was uh, teaching, in London, taking a class to the National Gallery, looking at this painting, you know, it occurred to me, there is not just one winner, but there were three competing goddesses in total. What about those other two goddesses and their their offerings to Paris? Wouldn't those count too? Wouldn't those also be attractive to males? And they are, and, and they form the second and third step of the first phase of human courtship. Although the, the very first step is beauty, number one, um, Helen of Troy, the gift of Aphrodite to Paris, the offering, the temptation. It's actually called the, the judgment of Paris, or sometimes the temptation of Paris. But what about the other two? So Hera will be step two. We'll cover that in a couple weeks. Um, which is uh, dominion over the whole world. Um, it's it's uh, the female choosing the male above other males, hierarchically, um, that he is uh, her number one choice. And as such is uh, cinematically represented by Leo DiCaprio in Titanic, where he says, I, I'm king of the world, king of the world feeling um, high rank, hierarchy, being the chosen one in the eyes of the female. And then the third one, Athena, it offered Paris the ability to win every battle that he would ever fight. So the competitive spirit in males uh, must rise to the occasion and be chosen by the female as a winner, not a loser. Uh, the role of Athena in battles to the ancient Greeks was she chose the most noble army. She chose which army was going to win, which was the the winning army. Who is the winner? Athena was uh, the one who chose. And so that matters too. And that'll be the third step of courtship overall and the third step of passion and desire. So let me let me look here and see who we have. 
Okay. So if you were to go to the first link that I provide you um, on this teleseminar, it'll take you to uh, the overall table of contents uh, page on Romantopedia. And one of the reasons it's called Romantopedia is because much like Wikipedia or an encyclopedia, it's a reference that, that tunnels you down to the answers that you need on any specific question. And that's especially true if you use the function to the right called virtual advisor. It'll ask you a series of questions that'll tunnel you down to just the right article out of 5,000 of them to answer a question you may have. The other way you can use romantopedia.com is simply to, to surf it. Um, there are a lot of things that are highlighted uh, that you can click on, sort of like navigating your own intranet of romance and human courtship. There are various ways to navigate. Uh, besides surfing, you'll find that there's a scrolling menu that travels with you that is a uh, parchment color a bit to the right. And uh, of note, that parchment is... Uh, a parchment of Botticelli's, believe it or not. I borrowed Botticelli's parchment that he painted on for that traveling menu. In this particular page that we're on, uh, step one has a, a, a couple uh, ways of naming it. Um, boy meets girl or girl meets boy is one way to call step one because after all, two people have to meet each other if they're going to start to engage in a conversation and begin a romance, the technicalities, borrowing from the judgment of Paris, the offering of Aphrodite in this contest I told you about, uh, offering the hand of Helen of Troy, beauty is the very first step of courtship. It is commenced by the female, and then the male's response to it is also included in this step, one for the female, one for the male. The female starts all courtship by, you could say, showing up beautiful, but it's uh, way more refined and sophisticated than just pure physical beauty. Uh, beauty is symbolic of health. It's symbolic, not just symbolic, it, it's representative of symmetry and symmetry of the physical form is a sign of physical health and robust health, robust genetics, ultimately. So what physical beauty represents, you could say just a display of health uh, would be similar. So it's not as simple as, you know, a, a woman has to be a supermodel to be appealing to a male. That's just not true. In fact, you know, it could be unhealthy in a way. It could be a turnoff um, if if one is too perfect or or certainly too thin, um, unhealthily thin, would be an example of uh, uh, a, a poor display of health in in a um, appealing visual form just because somebody's beautiful. So I use the term beauty, but that means much more. It means symmetry. It means physical health. 
You know, an example of a, a psychological display of physical health would be for a woman to be socializing and meeting males and only to drink half uh, half of a drink or half of a glass of wine, and that's it for the entire night. That would display restraint and health to a degree, healthy enough to socialize and um, be enjoying oneself, but to not overindulge. Um, to not overeat. Putting on a physical display, there are numerous um, um, preening movements, uh, ways of attire. The entire cosmetics industry is psychologically rooted um, in this step, this first step of human courtship. So there are all kinds of physical ways of displaying health and amplifying the appearance of health as well for the purposes of a um, a sexual display ritual to attract suitors on the, on the part of the female and a lot of the combinations and permutations of this are covered in the coursework not the coursework the articles in romantopedia.com in the parchment colored traveling menu to the right so you'll see titles like Masculinity and Femininity, Playing It Cool, Paris of Troy, Narcissus and Echo, What is Beauty Anyway, Beauty and Danger, Smile and the World Smiles With You. So these are each articles covering a dimension of just this one first step of human courtship, both for the female and for the male. And you'll see the ones that um, pertain to beauty, symmetry, smiling, attire, preening, even dancing is a visual display of physical health, showing balance. Uh, people's Instagram photos, Facebook photos, um, online dating photos will often show some kind of athletic prowess or athletic activity. Um, on the part of both males and females. This is yet another example of displaying one's, not just beauty, but one's symmetry, one's health. So physical health is what is being displayed by the female. Now, in kind, um, the male response to this, to attract the female in this first step, is going to be one of I use the word mystery, and that can sound kind of confusing. What does that mean exactly? How, how are you mysterious? Well, first off, this is rooted in what is called the female Oedipus, called by psychoanalysts the female Oedipus. Carl Jung called it the Electra complex. It has to do with the very earliest experience of the masculine by a girl, which is in the form of her father, where she is going through this, this process of wanting his attention, needing his attention, and putting on displays uh, to get her father's attention. And one of the ways that she experiences her father, one of the most uh, profound aspects of its nature is that her father is mysterious. Uh, he goes off to work and does mysterious things that she knows not of, but 
somehow he comes home and he cares for the family and he cares for her and he hugs her and cuddles her and favors her above all other girls and elevates her. And this is all a mysterious thing to her. Now in psychoanalysis training, uh, when you learn about the female Oedipus or the Electra complex, you'll sometimes hear the story of Bluebeard, the French noble. And this is illustrative of the mysterious nature of males in both attracting females, but how it is rooted in the connection between father and daughter originally. The very, the very first experience of the masculine for the girl was of her father. Um, it, it's not to say that adult males become a father figure to the woman per se. It's just that her very first experience of the masculine was from her father. And the story of Bluebeard, in essence, the way it goes is Bluebeard, uh, the French noble, was wealthy and was known to have numerous wives sequentially. And they all disappeared under mysterious, mysterious circumstances. It was said that he had one rule of marriage, was, which was that each successive wife uh, was able to run the house, run the, uh, the chateau, and had access to all the rooms, including one that she was not to enter. And lo and behold, each uh, successive wife could not resist looking in the secret room and would discover the dead bodies of the, you know, 99 former wives in there until the very last one uh, who had brothers who came to her rescue, as the fable goes, and um, I think killed Bluebeard and rescued their sister, ultimately. Um, once she was discovered, he came home and discovered her in his secret room, but she notified her brothers in time to come rescue her. The thrust of the story is that males at the very least through having boundaries and some sense of privacy and dignity cannot ever be completely known to the core by anyone else, um, including their eventual spouse, that there are always secret confines in the depths of the unconscious, at least, or just in one's simple privacy, where the woman maintains a curiosity, an inquisitiveness. Inquiring minds want to know. You, you may see uh, some of the consumerism in entertainment products like um, choices in television, for example. Um, there are even parodies on Saturday Night Live about this, uh, how women love murder shows. Why, why do women love their murder shows so much? And men are left scratching their heads. Why do they like watching murder so much? Well, it kind of harkens back to this Bluebeard-like story. There's danger, but there's mystery. Uh, there is a mystery to solve. So the inquisitiveness of the female mind about a male of interest is essentially the 
the nugget, the, uh, the, the core principle to what is initially attractive about a male to female. It's that there's something about him that the female finds alluring and wants to know more about and ask, perhaps ask questions about or even tries to name, tries to give a nomenclature to. It's been said that if you can, um, if you can name a thing, you get a degree of control over it. At least there is less fear and anxiety and danger if you can name a thing. Any of you who have ever had a abnormal lab test and didn't know what it meant and got with your doctor and learned more about, well, what could it mean? What are the possibilities? What is your prognosis? Your anxiety was lessened by finding out the name of what is it that you have in your lab test and what could it mean? So naming things gives a, a degree of control and a measure of safety. As long as something can't be named, it remains more mysterious and, in a sense, also dangerous by way of it being the unknown. One of the driving forces in females evolutionary psychologists will talk about uh, the need for security, a feeling of security, which would be a feeling of control. Well, the irony is if a male was to fully surrender control of the date, his dating life or the, or a relationship that has been started or control of his privacy or full knowledge of him where he can be given a nickname. Um, when you see sex in the city, the television show for six seasons, very popular um, some decades back, they give names to all the males in the show, or at least they try to name them. They give them nicknames like Mr. Big. So giving a nickname is a way of trying to exert control over an unknowable and mysterious um, individual of interest. So a lot of times when males are asking me, well, how do I, how do I learn to be this or do this? How do I be mysterious? Well, you may think um, being humorous is one way of being mysterious. Humor is, is mystery. Um, it, it, it's unexpected and mysterious how it works. Um, trying to solve a puzzle, trying to solve a problem, trying to give a name to something. Really, uh, males can be mysterious indirectly by way of simply noticing that uh, if a female keeps asking questions about his nature, then she remains curious. It's her curiosity that reveals that the man is being mysterious and therefore attractive in this way. And then finally, it's worth mentioning that um, we could think about danger. You know, a lot of uh, bloggers and writers will uh, write stories about the appeal of bad boys, uh, the appeal of villains. Um, there are wildly popular movies where the male is a bit uh, naughty, at least, or villainous at worst and attractive in so being. Um, most popular uh, 
set of books ever purchased by females, uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. You know, the main character is wealthy, but a little bit villainous, quite naughty. So there's a danger aspect. Why all the murder shows? Why the appeal of Bluebeard? It's dangerous. So what does that tell us? The idea of being a bit dangerous. Or uh, Robert Pattinson in the that, that vampire trilogy, uh, Twilight. That was wildly popular. The dangerous, narcissistic monster, the vampire, uh, the female wants to convert to a prince, to a wonderful man instead of a vampire. Why is this? Well, think about uh, a term arousal. What is arousal? Some of you may think of um, a physical area of the brain, the amygdala. A lot of people talk about the amygdala as uh, being the alarm bell of the brain, the place of arousal. And if you think about arousal in evolutionary terms, survival on the one end of the spectrum and reproduction on the other end of the spectrum, you might see that arousal is a a terminology that is a, a good companion for the word passion uh, because there there can be danger as a form of arousal because your the alarm bells are ringing you're on edge you're paying attention you're intensely focused on potential danger in that case but then again on the other end of things there's reproductive arousal and that's a different kind of arousal but it's still arousal the alarm bells are still going off attention is focused it the amygdala in in some part is is still involved in this and yet it's a entirely different kind of arousal it's sexual so isn't this interesting there's a spectrum of arousal where on the one end of the spectrum is danger which pertains to one's survival and viability and then on the other end of the spectrum of arousal you could say there is a romantic or sexual or passion-based arousal and isn't it interesting that the two ends of the spectrum are the two main um foci of human instincts and what they're for to a keep us alive survive long enough to reproduce so arousal pertains to both survive and reproduce which brings us back to the word passion that we covered last time and how the word passion pertains to both uh, survival and reproduction. So let's turn to your questions. Um, I, I think you can reference um, romantopedia.com. Those of you who are paying Substack members can. And I gave you the link to what tonight's topic is about, step one of human courtship and we have a couple questions that have come in first off Silo from europe submitted a question last time under the teleseminars button of the substacks you're able to submit questions to the subsequent week 
or the, the, the two week out teleseminar. If you can't attend live, you can submit a question. So CeeLo says, hello, Dr. Paul, thank you for your detailed explanation regarding my question last time, last week about libido. What is libido? This week, I'm going to go a bit further. Is lust the same as libido? What are positive and negative sides of lust? In many cultures, lust has negative connotation. So what does this mean? Um, I tend to think in terms of uh, synonyms, very similar words that have similar functions or, or they're at least part of a, uh, an area of psychology. So I think of the word lust in that way. It's similar, very similar to libido. In fact, the bastardization of what Freud really meant by the word libido, which was life force, it got misinterpreted by the public at large as only being sexual appetite, which is the same as lust. So one of the more, I think, more minor interpretations of what did Freud mean by libido is to say he meant lust. That's a very minor uh, sub part of what he really meant by it. He meant life force, which for males is masculinity itself. And for females is femininity itself. And when we talked last time about the whole first phase of human courtship, what is it? We tried to define what is masculinity and what is femininity. And no, they are absolutely not learned. That would be, that's absurd. Um, and very sophomoric to say that they're learned, passed on by generations, as if everyone's an Oscar-winning actor or actress who can portray some fake role all their life, 24-7. No, they're instincts. They are sets of instincts. So masculinity is a set of instincts that's pretty universal among males through all world cultures and throughout all history. Same for femininity, a set of instincts that are actually analogous and yet complementary, mutually complementary with masculine instincts. They, they each amplify each other and empower each other, especially in the courtship process. So there's sets of instincts, but then again, they're also something more. They are an energy too. And the energy they are is what Freud was referring to by libido, life force, kind of like the force in Star Wars, only much more. Um, the, the, the force of vitality and truly being alive, which brings us back to the very first step of courtship, which is commenced by the female in the species, which is to display beauty, which is represented by symmetry, which is one and the same as displaying health robust, durable health, which is the same as vitality, which is the same as libido. Now, other synonyms would be vitality, viability, 
and even charisma. So one of the things um, some people ask me, both males and females, probably more males, will ask me, um, how do I display attractiveness? How, how can I, what's the quickest tip for being attractive? I think for both males and females, it would simply be displaying charisma, displaying a lot of good energy, fun times, um, being a bon vivant, uh, being welcoming and friendly, full of energy, full of the energy of life. That's charisma. So, so the quick tip for how to be generally attractive, whether you're male or female, is display charisma, display good energy, be excited about something, the opposite of being depressed and sad or quiet or overly shy. Come out of your shell, as they say. And although that sounds like trivial, frivolous advice, in a certain context, you can now see it's science-based because you most certainly want to display vitality if you are to be attractive. So that's libido. Um, now, back to Silo's question to fully answer it, he's using the specific word lust and wondering, well, what is that? What does that have to do with libido? I think in a lot of cultural contexts and religious contexts, all the religions, the word lust has an implication to it that one is being dominated by these instincts, ruled by them, controlled by them. The instincts by their very nature are unconscious. They're automatic, right? So there's another part to you too. You're more than just an animal. You're more than just a reptile. You have a conscious mind. You have logic, boundaries, and even ethics. You have character. So I think the word lust is a, a synonym for libido or passion or life force that has a negative connotation because it implies it's life force unsteered, unchecked, unbalanced, by one's maturity of character, which today has been called emotional intelligence. All that refers to really is maturity, maturity of character, good character. So lust in all the world's religions tends to be a negative because it implies that one lacks character maturity enough to control one's passionate desires which can lead in certain contexts often um, to poor outcomes, poor results, not to romance that's durable and lasting, but just that is uh, frivolous and kind of one night stand in nature. Okay. Michael from Melbourne has a statement the password from the email is not working. Is there another one to enter the teleseminar? Yeah, I believe for tonight it is human courtship. One word. It should be human courtship, one word. Okay. 
Let me make sure of this. I'm, I'm looking for the um, uh, the displayed page. Yep, it's human courtship, one word. I'm going to go ahead and put that on Substack. Hopefully somebody sees it in time to make use. Let's see. I will put it under a note. Let's see. Notes. Here we go. Set that out. Hopefully, Michael gets this. Some of you may have gone to the uh, teleseminars page. I'm going to go there as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, the code is there. It says human courtship. One word. That's the code. That's the code to get in. So... Update just to be sure. All right. I'll let uh, I'll let tonight's teleseminar temporarily be uh, for anyone who wants to attend. As you return to this page, um, I'm always going to update it under the teleseminars button of Romantopedia.com, since we're going through the nine steps of courtship on Romantopedia.substack.com. Uh, there are also separate substacks for other areas of psychology, of course, like men's psychology, women's psychology, uh, that have a teleseminar of their own. All right. Yeah, this should be available to you all at this point. Tomorrow I will uh, I'll leave it up, and um, I'll change it to last week's recording. For you, and then double check one more time, see if there's anybody live on the call. Ah, we have Michael with a raised hand. I'm going to unmute you. Hey there, hey there, Michael. Hi, can you hear me, Dr. Paul? I can hear you. How does this time work for you in Australia? You somehow became unmuted again, or muted. Now you're unmuted. Terrific. Hello, Dr. Paul. Yes, I just had some uh, difficulties getting into the call, but I've been here for about six minutes now. Thank you for responding to that. Sure, sure. Yeah, the uh, 
the code listed on the teleseminar uh, page is human courtship, one word. And that should, ah. that should have gotten people in. I was looking at the email which said uh, its code was like share Romantopedia. Yeah, yeah. Okay, no problem. Yeah. Oh, well, shucks. No, no that was erroneous. I guess a lot of people didn't get in. <laughs> um, I put up a new note, though. I'll probably do an, uh, an extra note tomorrow, letting people uh, go ahead and download the recording and listen. Gotcha. So you, you may you may have heard uh, me uh, sort of uh, browsing around trying to make sure people are aware of the code to get in. I don't know if you heard CeeLo's question. I heard the question about uh, lust and how that's connected yes. with, uh, yeah, as a synonym for the passions. Yes, 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 very good. Yeah, essentially what we covered uh, last week was just a general intro to the three phases of, of human courtship, sexual, emotional, and intellectual attraction, which correlate with the reptilian, mammalian, and higher brain of the evolutionary psychologists. Um, Jungian psychology, I believe, meets evolutionary psychology as it pertains to instincts and the unconscious, which is what is pertinent to the first phase of courtship, sexual attraction, desire, um, desire, attraction, passion, all unconscious, automatic behaviors, much like the rest of the animal kingdom. Um, but part of what separates us and the reason I think there's a need for a more detailed, cogent, um, sophisticated, full rendering of human courtship as opposed to other animal species is that we have this advanced higher brain and emotional capacities, not just sexual appetites and instincts. Mm. Thus, we have nine steps to courtship, not just three. Did you have uh, further thoughts or commentary? I understand you, I mentioned this before, that you yourself have gone on to get a degree or a certification as a psychologist or therapist. Yeah, that's right. So I'm practicing psychology in Australia. And uh, I'll tell you, a very interesting area of, um, of professional development recently has been really understanding psychometrics and, uh, and the types of assessments you do, for example, with trauma. So that's been like a big area of growth for me recently. Oh, that's great. That's great. Um, you should tap in a bit to a colleague of mine who's participated a lot in the training programs that you that you also have access to over on romanticdynamics.com courses.romanticdynamics.com um, we do a men's psychology course with some of the latest models being used for males that are very useful and, and trauma is a big part of that whether it's for mm -hmm. males or females trauma is uh, such a rich area and my colleague is um, Jeremy Fox so you'll see some of the talks. I put out some 
podcasts and videos of me talking with him. He's an expert in trauma, and he has some very sophisticated ideas about that. I like the idea of using psychometrics, as you're saying. Yeah, it's uh, it's really it's really made the biggest difference to my practice, and it really just sharpens it up in terms of professionalism and gives you really accurate feedback. So I was using myself as the instrument before, but that's ah. I think that's just, that's just the old way of doing things, you know. So put them through all these screening tools. So there's been some very interesting parts to the um, yeah, just to, sorry to to wax on here, but. Uh, yeah. regarding you know, the dimensions and this dimensional model versus the categorical model of uh, kind of PTSD dimensions and the complex dimensions of like relationship interferences or self schemas and things like that that come up. Mm, that has yeah. just been... Schemas. Yeah. Ego states. Uh, Jeremy, in our last talk, uh, he, he opined about ego states and the, the various measures of ego states that are important in looking at trauma. I got him to talk a bit about the power of combining uh, two techniques, EMDR, which absolutely helps trauma, is curative, I think, in fact, alongside of um, inner child work. Inner child work, very powerful as an adjunct to EMDR. If you then add psychometric data, one of the things I like about that, you know, the the tools of the trade of the psychologist is probably psychometrics, surveys, data gathering in psychology, whereas psychiatrists are more steeped in um, psychopharmacology, of course, because we prescribe. We're much less um, into measuring psychometrics like the psychologist would. But I really like the idea, having formerly been a, an anesthesia trainee, we used to use um, SUD scores for pain, which are subjective units of discomfort. And what's interesting about that is how do you take somebody's talk therapy narrative, which is just using language, which is notoriously full of mutual bias, mutual subjectivity, how can you get hard data out of that? Well, the anesthesiologists get hard data of change out of a SUD score where a patient marks on a line from zero to 100, what is their level of pain? And they measure it serially to see a subjective, hopeful downgrade in pain over Mm. time. Well, I think the same is true of all, all metrics in psychology where one may measure subject uh, subjectively where they fall. And if you can track serially the change, it's the change that you want to see. Even if it is subjective, it's a change, an improvement. Yeah, 100%. So, yeah, repeated measures on some of these is, is really, uh, yeah. really useful. Like the PSQ-9 yeah. for depression, for example. You know, it's both yep. objective and subjective and serial. So you can see the PHQ-9 drop in a person who's improving in their depression. Yeah, treatment response. What, I, what I'm really finding, and where it's, I think, sharpened, you know, I, I don't want to hog the call because I know there's other people on listening, is uh, 
is that it really sharpens up the conceptualization of what's going on for present. There is the repeated measure, so you want to know that you're having a treatment effect. That's really important. <laughs> this was not part of my uh, part of my practice even like three months ago, you know. And wow. uh, it was all just counselling because that's how we do it in here. It's just sort of in response to a doctor's diagnosis, and then it's treated under Medicare. But it's not that we do the assessment and the diagnosis. And as a result, most psychologists don't. They do. Some of them do screening, but uh, essentially it's just here, take the patient and then see what you can do in terms of their counselling needs. So this has been very interesting in terms of the conceptualisation of their issues and the treatment planning, which is uh, can be really specific when you use um, psychometrics. And then the next part is the repeated measures or the, the serial measurement part. So I'm just finding it as just... Phew, so it's really fascinating. Uh, I, I actually have I, I have a yeah. courtship question for you. Sure. As well, sure. as well. And but if you don't mind, so this is just a reflection on a client. This will be all um, this will be de-identified and everything. But uh, so there's a client I have. I would say she's kind of like you know what you used to call the lover personality type. And. Yeah. Uh, and so she had some you know, negative experiences and she's come out of a relationship and she had all sorts of negative things go on. And when I introduced to her the idea of competition, like let's say competition in the marketplace for dating, sure. or you know, maybe that's competition with other women or competing to get the right kind of mate, the, I, I, the, the, the part about how would you say it? The part about, um, yeah, competitiveness. On the one hand, she's coming from this sort of softer personality style and saying, you know, why can't we just find the people that are true to us? Why do we have to compete, etc.? So I felt like I got into a little bit of a head-to-head -head with her on wow. the topic of competition. So I think that as it was filtered through her personality style, so... Just be curious to hear what your thoughts are about something like that. Wow. Well, um, I have a lot of thoughts about that. Um, let's see. Let me uh, let me first start with a couple things I might say to every single person I meet uh, for a first evaluation. Um, and this is not medical care on these calls, by the way, for everybody to know. This is philosophizing and, and riffing on some interesting topics. Um, what I would tend to say is that the two most important models in psychiatry, I've always worked on teams. I prefer to work on a team where there's a therapist involved. Um, I'm a prescriber, but I kind of oversee the whole, the whole works of the treatment. And then finally, the patient themselves is a team. They are a team member as well. And a complete treatment team would be potentially a prescriber. Maybe it's not necessary, but they would oversee things. A psychologist or therapist, and then the patient. That's the treatment team. Um, and this is in accord with the most important model in behavioral health, the biopsychosocial model. The biopsychosocial model any patient can latch on to and understand very easily, and yet it's profoundly useful because it's a way of dividing all the sources of problems 
we face and putting the variables into three boxes. There's a biological box, which maybe will involve a need for a med, or at the very least, it'll address genetics, inheritance, and biologic sex, let's say, for our purposes, talking about courtship. Secondly, psychology is a big, big box, and it has to do with one's life story, life's narrative, traumas, events that have happened, experiences, education, um, things that have happened to the person in their story. And the tools used are psychology, spirituality, philosophy, and education in solving those problems. Psychology is much like software is to a computer. Biology is like hardware. But then the third box is sociology. And in understanding this biopsychosocial model, uh, you know, a more recent uh, addition I would make to it that's crucial is that some people mistake sociology as being a behavioral science exactly equivalent to psychology and biology. It is not. It has entirely different principles. It's linked via this model, the biopsychosocial model, but sociology is all that which is outside of us. It is not part of us. It's like the water we swim in as a fish. It's the milieu that we are in. And it is a group phenomenon, but it's full of polls and wishful thinking and what we would wish for, policies designed to improve our lives as a community. And it's group psychology. It's not very particular to an individual. It's for groups. And because it's outside of us, there is that important, all-important barrier between our biology and psychology on the inside and the sociology on the outside, which we all know is called the personal boundary. So if the personal boundary is weak and full of holes and, and immature, then the sociology just bleeds into the person and affects them for better or worse, rather than the person having decision-making power over picking and choosing good things about it and opportunity, such as your person you're talking about, making, making good luck for herself rather than being victim to the milieu she's swimming in. And that's where competition comes in here. There, there's all this data to be looked at. A really great reference is a friend and colleague of mine, Rob Henderson, who also has a substack, a wonderful substack that you should check out. He's great at analyzing the sociology as it pertains to, including in the dating world, how does it affect males? How does it affect females? And a lot of the data that he would look at um, and that you could study on this matter is good news for females, I think. Um, it's very pro-female in our current sociology. They have all the advantages in the world. The technology of um, dating apps and um, matchmaking services are all very, very positive for females. They can have the pick of the litter, so to speak. They have unlimited choice in males, whereas males don't really get to pick and choose 
who they want to date, they have to try to appeal to uh, the smaller number of females on these services. So if I had your person, I would, I tend to be a practical optimist. I would, I would say all kinds of glowingly positive uh, mention of the data saying women have just all the benefits out there generally as a group. Now, what people in sociology may tend to like to downplay is the fact that we are all on a bell curve. So the, the group behavior out there is often going to be referenced in terms of what is the average, the mean of bell curves. And uh, is the mean or median positive for females, positive for males, negative for females, negative for males? You know, you're, you're looking at a mean. And if we don't have a bell curve with a mean, then we might as well not even talk about psychology or try to help people with it because we there has to be a bell curve or there are no rules or laws to refer to or a distribution of individual humans within groups otherwise why even talk about these matters so first off is trying to teach people what is a bell curve where might you fall on it psychometrically what can you then do about improving your lot in life, depending where you fall on it, and go from there. If we don't talk about that at all, then we're just talking about, you know, myths and fairy tales and, you know, probably misleading people if we don't talk about bell curves. So back to competition and to her perhaps personality style, uh, from a point of optimism, somebody who is of a an agreeable I like the big five personality styles as well I think it's all data-based um, it doesn't come from a theoretical framework it doesn't start with a theory and say let's test the theory it just says here's all the data on the internet and here are the five five dimensions of personality and that's useful and great in its own way but I also like theoretical models so the the K, what used to be called the KWML, what I call now call the social personality system, is coming from a theoretical standpoint, whereas the Big Five is coming from a big data standpoint. I think they both have their own merits. And if she's an agreeable person on the Big Five, or as you're saying, maybe a lover on the social personality system, and doesn't like competition has a wishful thinking that there could just, let's do away with competition. Why can't I just have my soulmate arrive? Why can't I just sort of passively wait for my soulmate to arrive? There may be a part to her constitution that may never transform itself into this naturally competitive person. Maybe she, she won't and can't become that. But how could she leverage what she does have in her favor as a female? And I'm assuming a heterosexual female. Well, at least, at least it falls upon the males to do the pushing forward through these early steps of courtship. And maybe that's impaired by our current 
sociologic environment, males are not encouraged to, you know, advance the position, if you will, to try to move forward with uh, closer physical proximity, uh, physical intimacy, and, and so forth. So it leaves society with a dilemma. If, if it falls upon males to make the first move, so to speak, but they should not because that's at, at best um, discourteous and at worst aggressive or assaultive, then I guess males and females just aren't going to be able to meet and aren't going aren't to be able to find love and, and romance. Kind of a dilemma sociologically. But, it, but at least uh, your person could count on not having to feel that it has to be her role or duty to push forward in advancing courtship. It's expected that she is to be her authentic self, um, display health first in, in step one, um, to indicate she's interested in a particular male more than others, um, to display her best, put her best foot forward, display her best traits in her view. If she's a kind, caring person, that's of great advantage. That's very feminine. That's appealing. Um, but once she gets to step three of courtship, which is the Athena instinct and the Artemis instinct in females, it's where they test males. You could say that's competitive, but it's not necessarily going toe-to-toe -to -toe competing with a male or necessarily even competing with other females as if there's a prize to be won, as if she has to defeat other women in order to win a man. It doesn't fall on her to do that. What does fall on her is to be picky or choosy of males and to test them. And she doesn't have to test them in some aggressive way. It can be as simple as her taking note of the quality of the man's character. Is he honest? Is he uh, forthright? Does he have fortitude? Is he strong? Is he protective of her and of women in general? Is he a loyal friend? Does he have humor? Is he interesting? These are all tests that she would issue toward the male, probably unconsciously so. It, th these are all unconscious processes for the most part, although they, people can make themselves more conscious and aware as they are doing them. They're arising from instincts which are unconscious. So part of empowering her is to normalize. She doesn't have to be some big aggressive competitor. She doesn't have to be inauthentic. She doesn't have to learn aggressive techniques in order to win, to defeat other women, or to defeat men. And in fact, why in the world would you want to defeat somebody you want to find love with anyway? You hope that they will rise to the occasion, um, like the old notion of a cheerleader, um, a sports team was at a deficit and might lose if they are not cheered on, maybe by the audience. But in this particular case, 
by the female of interest. The, the male who prefers this female would want to be cheered on in demonstrating his uh, best features and hopefully rises to the level that she approves of. Now, in the ancient Greek world, the goddess Athena was the judge of the merits of males and the merits of combatants, the merits of armies. And she would, in the end, choose who's going to win battles, which is why the Athenians made her their their patron deity. They wanted to win. They wanted to prosper by by winning, by being powerful. So this is the nature of the female. All females, heterosexual females, who um, are in the dating world, eventually they're going to judge men before moving on to more intimacy and exclusive dating. I don't know if that gets to answering the question about competitiveness and your particular person or not. Sure does. Sure does. There was plenty of good stuff in that. I've got about two and a half pages of notes. And uh, (laughs) I can can actually give you some feedback uh, on the the big five because that was assessed. Sure. And... uh, it's average level, which means, you know, comparing, um, where is it here? Where's the first table? Uh, the big five factors, agreeableness, was at the 36th percentile, which they call average. That's the uh, okay. the descriptor. And in okay. terms of the facets that make that up, like a 50 would be average average. And so maybe she's got, she's not quite the full lover, but she does have aspects of that style, I would say. Uh, and... Kind of high in the morality dimension, low in the okay. trust. I wonder if that's been affected by, like her scoring on that's been affected by, you know, trauma and, and sort of breach. Ah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, but also then quite average on the um, sort of cooperation and modesty uh-huh. and sympathy dimensions and things. Okay. Well, then I have two other aspects to uh, to mention here then um the big five very advantageous very valid uh repeatable reliable predictive wonderful the big five best in the world as far as looking at this social personality system and kings warriors kings queens warriors magicians lovers an advantage that i see to using that model as a theoretical model and adjunct to the big five would be to say in this model, part of the reason it is now called the social personality system is it's not just an individual in isolation. It's looking at an individual in how they would communicate with particular others of a particular type of their own. In other words, what are the permutations and combinations of combining socially and romantically, say a lover female with, a king male, a warrior male, a magician male, or a lover male? What are the permutations and combinations of those pairings? Well, for your particular person, a king male would tend to be her first boyfriend. Why? It's the lesson of Romeo and Juliet. We need to remember Romeo and Juliet was a tragedy 
not a comedy, not a hero story. It was a tragedy. And part of why it was a tragedy is because they were identical in personality. They were both lovers. If you pick somebody who's your identical twin, you don't offer each other any complementary skill of personality to achieve in life and to be true partners with diverse skills brought to the table. The question I always ask of Shakespeare is, why didn't Romeo and Juliet just run away from their families and go start a farm north of Milan or move to, move to France, get away from their damn families and not kill themselves, certainly? Mm. Well, because they, they didn't, nobody could rise to the occasion of being a warrior. They were both lovers, right? So nobody could take charge, neither of them. So same would be true of your person and a lover male. That would probably not be for her, although that would be her first love because people of the same personality style in the system will tend to choose to do activities that are appealing to that personality style. And that's where they first meet. When we're in our teens, when we're in our early 20s, we tend to take up activities and hobbies that we like. And we tend to meet people that are similar to us. They have the same likes. And so our first boyfriend or girlfriend is going to be a lot like us in personality. And then it doesn't work out, just like Romeo and Juliet, because we're too imbalanced. We're too twins. We're too twin-like to have a diversity of skills to last as a durable couple. Um, What if she were paired with a magician? Well, If she is a lover, female, she's imaginative, creative, and so is a magician, but then neither of them is going to have enough focus and ability to dig in, be good with money, be detailed, have a clean place, have a strategic plan. Neither of them has a plan, so that tends to not work out so great either. And the magician loves an audience, so... He'll date her for a little bit, and then she'll be sad and disappointed when he moves on because magicians just drift around socially, social butterflies, even though they're male, and he'll move on, and she'll be disappointed. So that doesn't work out so great. Um, We already covered a lover male not working out so great. A king would be a good pairing with her intellectually, and they'd have wonderful conversation but they would make good co-authors rather than romantic partners. It'd be dry. It'd be intellectually interesting, but emotionally um, dry and maybe passionless eventually. So what's the best pairing for her socially in friendship and in romance? It'd be a, a warrior. And here's the optimism for her. Even though she doesn't like being competitive, she just wants to kind of, you know, be accepted and be loved and just find the soulmate and just be out there and available and hopefully the soulmate comes along. Well, that is a warrior. The warrior comes along and he is targeted and he knows what he likes and he's detailed about it and he's assertive and he's goal-directed and he will pursue her more than any other kind of personality style. And I mean courteously pursue her. I don't mean be a sexual predator. I mean courteously, um, gentlemanly pursue her. 
in a in a sense where she doesn't have to do that much quote work and she doesn't have to compete against other females and win that's for the warrior male to do he will be very competitive he will try to defeat other competing suitors in the vicinity and much like the evolutionary psychologists say and rob henderson would find 50 references to this in literature research literature he will the the warrior will try to defeat other suitors and that's part of the purpose of the human courtship process at this early stage which is that females because of the small number of total gametes 200 plus eggs over the reproductive lifespan versus males having billions of sperm the females evolved instinctual process for solving this dilemma of how do you find the best genetic match and suitors for her is let them compete with each other let the males compete with each other then the female doesn't need to exert that much energy genetically or physically to root out the poor candidates from the good candidates for her the males will just do it for her by competing with each other so she doesn't have to compete with other females especially for a male warrior the male warrior will be very competitive with other males and if he's of merit he'll rise to the top and he will win her heart and he will be protective of her as dr john barry in london has found with dr martin seeger um, the three main first discovered justified male instincts are provide and protect warriors are very good at that um, suppress one's emotions do not reveal don't cry in public don't don't reveal one's emotions show strength show fortitude and keep the cards close to the vest in competition with other males you know, go showing your emotions to the other males show your weakness from a masculine viewpoint and then um, thirdly win want to be a winner Th those are the three first discovered male instincts justified by the research finally i've i've always said that they exist but that's not good enough we needed research and john barry and martin seeger provide that so so the males the males are in sync with the the evolved female unconscious instinctual strategy to get males to compete with each other to spend the energy to sort themselves out by rank and fitness for the female they do it for the female yeah very good yeah all right yeah yeah that's great that's great i just went into a standard for the psycho ed and uh, i just found it, it, that didn't quite land with her uh, it's exactly the right thing for some people but um you know just mentioning sort of market forces and these kinds of things i have to tell you she's um on the physical stakes fairly attractive and so 
One area that she has uh, difficulty is with um, females actually sort of sniping at her. Um, I don't know if it's because she's hogging all the attention hmm. or, uh, or doing that kind of thing, but I think and she's quite a cheerful person, I'd say. And uh, as she says, look, I don't know what it is, but these um, you know, other women are just, they've got this, they've got this competitive thing or they... Oh, so uh, she runs into competition with other women. Yeah. Um, and there's jealousy and there's questions of how good of a friend are the, some of these other women. Maybe they're not so great friends um, yeah. to, to be with. You know, I... Again, in this early area of dating, um, the open market for dating and sexual attraction, passion, the first phase of courtship, I rely a lot on the Greek myths. And a Greek myth that correlates with this, I use two male instincts uh, for attractiveness also in this phase. I use the Hermes instinct to represent the mysteriousness of the male. Hermes or Mercury was known as the trickster god. He was the joker. He was humorous, but he was also quicksilver. He was the smooth talker, the smooth, mysterious, um, eloquent public speaker who kept people on their toes. That's the single male mysteriousness. The married male mysteriousness, I use um, the story of Eros, Eros or Cupid represents a mysterious married male. How within a marriage, a male still needs to maintain some privacy, some cards close to the vest, something interesting for his spouse to have curiosity about and to wonder about. And the story of Eros and his wife, Psyche, whom he marries, um, Psyche reminds me of your, your person in a sense because Psyche is the most beautiful mortal female in the myth and she's so beautiful that even the gods want to sleep with her. And this makes the goddesses incredibly jealous and other gods jealous because she's that beautiful. But she is in a natural but passive position where Eros pricks himself with his own arrow of love and falls in love with Psyche and whisks her away to a hidden castle, his hidden home. And he goes off at night, invisible to her in the darkness, and does his job, which is to make people fall in love. Um, but, but there's a unique feature to this. I'm getting to the point. She has sisters. Psyche has sisters. And the sisters are symbolic of today's woman's friends or actual sisters. Her friends or sisters are represented by Psyche sisters. And what Psyche sisters do that's central to the myth of Eros and Psyche is that because Eros maintains his his privacy, his dignity as a man, as a married man, married to Psyche. And he goes off and does mysterious things in the middle of the night, in the darkness. His job is making people fall in love. Psyche doesn't know what he does. He, he, he has one rule of marriage. She may never gaze upon him 
in the light of day. He will always be in the dark with her. And her sisters are allowed to visit her. And when Psyche's sisters are whisked away to this hidden domicile, this castle, to visit with her, they say, Psyche, Psyche, you're married to this, to this man who will not let you know what he does for a living. He is invisible. He's in the darkness. He won't let you look upon him in daylight. He's got to be a monster. There's something wrong with him. He's got to be a monster. So here is a dagger and here is a lamp for light. And what we suggest you do is when he comes home next time, we want you to stab him in the heart and then light the lamp to make sure he's dead because he is a monster for sure. So Psyche considers this advice and she takes the dagger and she takes the lamp. And when Eros or Cupid comes home that night in the darkness, she has her, her chance to just blindly follow the advice of the jealous sisters and stab him without first truly looking upon him. And she decides to do her own thing. She takes the tools of her sisters, but does not follow their advice precisely. She lights the lamp first and is ready with the dagger if he does prove to be a monster. And when she lights the lamp, she sees him in his beauty and realizes she is married to a god and that he is an honest male and good. And she does not stab him. She's truly in love now. She knows she is with a, a good, honest man. And the natural inclination of her good friends, her sisters, is to give her protective but incorrect advice, which is assume the man is bad, assume he is a monster, unless, and he has proven otherwise. So in a way, it's wise advice to be careful, and the, the friends of Psyche are advising her to be careful, but they're overkill, literally. They're, they're saying just assume Every man's a monster. Hmm. She needs to assess for herself. So that's, that's my advice on it's right from the myth because these myths are solid. They have Carl Jung's, one of his wonderful features is that his psychology is based on these stories that are durable over millennia. These stories are universals about human nature, meaning our instincts are universal. So he, so when he taps into the 